Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jeff Meekham, and I'll be your host. Today, we're joined by Dr. Will Carley, a board-certified otolaryngologist and fellowship-trained laryngologist. We will be discussing the very important topic of managing the difficult airway. Dr. Carley, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. And full disclosure, Jeff is one of my residents, so he will be unfortunately super nice to me today. I'm really looking forward to talking about today's topic. Uh, the saying goes, three weeks without food, three days without water, and three minutes without air. So learning how to anticipate, prepare for, and manage the difficult airway in an effective and timely manner is obviously something very important for every otolaryngologist to understand. So let's go ahead and get started. Dr. Carley, the term difficult airway can be used in a lot of different contexts. What constitutes a difficult airway, and is it defined prior to, during, or after encountering the difficulty establishing an airway? That is a good question, and you're going to get a different answer depending on who you ask and what field that person works in. Uh, so I will answer you from my standpoint as an otolaryngologist. So difficulty with an airway in general means that you're going to have issue with one of two things. Either it's going to be bag mask ventilation, or it's going to be intubation, or it'll be both of those things. And what makes it difficult again, depends on the operator. You could decide it's requiring multiple attempts, not able to achieve it, multiple operators and able to achieve it, multiple devices, um, not getting an adequate view, or just the subjective decision of calling it difficult because you felt it took more effort than usual. But in general, it's a very subjective term um, that will often travel with a patient. And because of that, it shouldn't just be labeled as a difficult airway, but a difficult airway because of X, Y, and Z when that's communicated to the next provider. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And we'll talk about that at the end, at how important documentation is, but as well, I'm making sure we're clear in what we mean by difficult airway. So what are some of the key scenarios in which otolaryngologists will encounter a difficult airway? Well, it can either be the OR, the ER, the ICU, depending on your practice. For me specifically, it's more commonly encountered in the operating room. And then you have all different types of scenarios, whether it be an emergent difficult airway or an elective planned case that becomes a difficult airway. In general, when the airway is handed off to an otolaryngologist, it's typically because it is a difficult airway or expected to be a difficult airway, um, whether that's being handed through the hands of anesthesia in the OR or an ER or critical care doctor outside of the OR. So what kind of risk factors uh, exist that predispose individuals to having a difficult airway? Well, there have been a lot of studies looking at this, um, creating different frameworks for it. And we can go over what some of those things are in a little bit with specific algorithms. But in general, we'll go through some of the things that come to the top of my mind. Um, in reality, it's a combination of many different factors that determine if an airway is going to be difficult or is encountered to be difficult. And when discussing these risk factors, it's helpful to think about, are we talking about difficulty bag masking the patient or difficulty with intubating the patient? Some of these factors will apply to just bag masking. Some will apply to intubation. Some will apply to both. Um, many of them will overlap. So in general, the ones that will overlap are obesity, malapati 3 or 4, short thyromental distance, abnormal neck anatomy, including radiation causing a lot of neck fibrosis, congenital syndromes, which is a lot of pediatric disorders, Pierre-Robin, for adults, Down syndrome, acquired things, um, apart from obesity, which we already mentioned, 
difficulty with neck extension. So for those type of patients with RA, ankylosing spondylitis, prior cervical surgery, especially ACDF, trauma, burns to the face, head and neck, airway infections, Ludwig's, epiglottitis, all of those many factors. And then you have ENT-centric risk factors. I already mentioned neck radiation, um, trismus, lymphedema, prior head and neck surgery, um, also tumors involved in the superglottis, glottis, subglottis, with or without obstruction. Then we have things that are specific to just difficulty masking the patient. So it's been shown that an age over 55 is more difficult than that below that age. A beard is a big no-no. Um, lack of teeth, obstructive sleep apnea, male sex, specifically for intubation, prior difficult intubation, that alone is a huge risk factor for whatever reason. Um, small mouth opening, so trismus, limited neck extension. Uh, when it comes to the beard with bag masking, we'll get into some tips that are helpful for that. But the biggest one is that if these are your patients and it's an elective case, don't be afraid to ask the patient to shave their beard if you think there's going to be any difficulty with their airway. They would much rather probably shave their beard and change their look than even the slight increase in risk of losing their airway. So in regards to epidemiology, how prevalent is having a difficult airway just in the general population? Well, that's a good question, and we're not quite sure. There's been a lot of different studies on this. Most difficulty with airway management is not predicted in advance, unfortunately. Um, one study in Denmark reviewed almost 200,000 cases and showed that approximately 93% of difficult intubations were actually unanticipated and 94% of difficult mask ventilation were unanticipated as well. The risk of difficult mask ventilation typically is thought to be somewhere between 1 and 5%, which is defined as the inability of unassisted anesthesiologists to maintain adequate oxygenation. I would consider that somewhat of a different definition to me, as an ENT, I'm never really going to be by myself masking the patient. So I'm always going to be in a scenario where I'm with an anesthesiologist or someone else manning the machine where I'm entirely focused on getting a good seal around the mask. Inside the OR, there's typically thought to be about a 1% to 3% incidence of unanticipated difficulty. And rate of difficult intubation is thought to be somewhere around 5%. Again, this range will vary depending on what you're looking at, what studies you're looking at. Outside of the OR, such as in the emergency room, the rate of difficult intubation has a higher incidence. The NEAR-3 project database with over 175,000 ED intubations found that 3% of airways are secured by means other than the first method chosen, and half of 1% required a surgical airway with 75% being salvaged after other methods failed. So let's move on to the exam. Uh, would you mind walking us through what constitutes a comprehensive airway evaluation? Good question. Just like with every other question that we've gotten to thus far, you're going to get a lot of different answers depending on who you ask. For me, it doesn't need to be that comprehensive for your average patient. But if you have any concerns about their airway, a more comprehensive airway evaluation would typically be performed by the anesthesiologist. Typically, no single test is an excellent predictor, such as the Malampati score, Friedman scale, but combining a lot of these different things can give you a quote-unquote more comprehensive evaluation. So for an airway history, prior anesthesia records, prior intubation records, as we previously mentioned, a history of difficult intubation in the past is a good predictor of difficult intubation in the future. 
So in his prior records, did they have easy bag mask ventilation? Did they have a video laryngoscope? Were they able to use a Mac blade? Why did they go with one over the other? What was the view that they got before their intubation? In terms of their past medical history, do they have any lung problems, recent infections, smoking, COPD, etc.? For your airway exam, for the most part, it's an eyeball test. Are they obese? Do they have facial hair? What does their neck shape and size look like to you? Do they have a prominent overbite, prominent underbite, a very weak chin, narrow mouth opening, short neck, limited neck extension, malpotty score? So basically, you look at them, you have them open their mouth, you have them put their head back. For me, that is all you need for your general airway exam. There's a 332 rule. So, mouth opening greater than three centimeters is considered to be ideal, and the thyromental distance best measured in full extension of the neck greater than three finger breaths is also considered to be quote unquote ideal. For malampati, obviously, we have class one through four, ranging from full view of the uvula and tonsillar pillars to no view of the pillars at all. Uh, in the sitting position, it's with the tongue in the mouth, done without phonation. Um, and for view of the airway, you can use either the Cormac or Lahane scores for your laryngoscopic view. Flexible laryngoscopy is a great tool to have in the pre-OR setting um, when evaluating if you will have a difficult airway or not. In my opinion, this is something that's underutilized by most of our anesthesia colleagues, probably by us as well, but definitely by anesthesia. That's why I always encourage as many anesthesia departments as possible to equip their people with a flexible laryngoscope or something similar so that they can evaluate if there is concern about it and they don't have to wait for the patient to be unconscious before they check this out. So it can be helpful for in-office laryngoscopy, pulling up the video if you have it, or if not, just doing it in the PACU. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's every time, but it's not infrequent that we'll pull up the scope exam from clinic, especially if we have any concern for the airway. And I think that anesthesia is always very much appreciated when we're able to give them insight into that. So in some circumstances, though, there might not be time to do that comprehensive airway evaluation prior to encountering difficulty. Uh, would you mind reviewing some of the quick and fast airway evaluations that could be used outside of the OR or in times when you don't have the liberty to, to go through the thorough history? Absolutely. And if the patient's amenable to it, same story. Eyeball the patient, get a quick look at them, have them open their mouth, head back. That gives you your basic gist of things. If you want to talk about an algorithm, you could quickly go through in your head, which most of my colleagues probably would never use, but might be good for a learner getting used to this type of situation. Uh, when it comes to difficulty to bag masking, which is the most important difficulty with intubation, not that big a deal if you can bag mask the patient. Bag masking difficulty is what the, you really want to be concerned about. So Roman, R-O-M-A-N, R stands for radiation or restriction. So head and neck radiation decreasing tissue pliability, obviously leading to restriction of gas flow, O, obstruction, obesity, OSA, M, mask seal, male, malampati, A, age, so over 55, as we mentioned, and N equals no teeth, which will make it easier for your intubation, but more difficult to get a good seal for your bag mask. So wherever possible, planning prior to intubation is obviously emphasized as one of the most important steps to successfully managing a difficult airway. Would you mind discussing the pre-procedural planning for difficult airways? Absolutely. So like you mentioned, being prepared is by far the most important thing, if you can be. The previous study that we mentioned said that 93% of cases aren't prepared for a difficult airway. 
that is higher than what I've experienced in my career. Um, but at the same time, it's definitely a lot of scenarios you will not have been prepared for and will regret it and look back and hopefully learn from it. Assuming that you are preparing for that difficult airway or you know you're going to have a difficult airway, there are multiple algorithms that exist to help guide decision making. So planning the approach, timing of airway control, first is deciding if you're going to be doing it awake or asleep. If awake, it's typically because there's been a discussion, well, basically it should always be because there's been a discussion between yourself and the anesthesiologist, and you both have decided that the risk of not being able to mask ventilate the patient or easily intubate them outweighs the cons of doing this awake. So when it comes to awake intubations, you can do a quote-unquote awake typical direct laryngoscopy. Most people don't feel comfortable with that. So when most people are discussing awake intubations, they're talking about either endoscopic transnasal or peroral. So apart from expected difficulty with mask or supraglottic ventilation, another potential reason why you may want to do it awake is because the stomach is not empty and you want the patient to be able to protect their own airway. However, in those cases, we'll typically just do rapid sequence. Next is a good set of questions to ask yourself. Is the airway control required? Could a direct laryngoscopy be at all difficult? Could supraglottic ventilation be used if needed? Is the stomach empty? Will the patient tolerate an apneic period? It's important to think through your algorithm and contingency points before running into any difficulty, if at all possible. Probably the most important thing about quote-unquote being prepared is checking your equipment before starting. So many times you will say, oh, we have this right. You're told yes. Well, it's not plugged in. This isn't set up. It's important that you specifically, not your resident, not your attending, not your colleague, but you specifically check the equipment, make sure all of it is working, have plan A through F in your head. When things are starting to go south, it's very important to act calm, but it's very hard to think. So you want to do all your thinking before you run into a difficult situation. So you think through, well, plan A is to do this. If this fails, next I'd want to do that. If that fails, next I'd want to do that. That way, when you're in the difficult situation, plan A fails, you don't have to think. You've already decided that this is going to be my plan B. That failed. No more thinking. This is going to be my plan C. It's important to try to do as much thinking as you can beforehand so that you don't have to when you're under a lot of pressure. And also, it's really important to know where to find these emergency airway supplies. So not just asking someone, oh, can you grab the airway bougie for me? And they say, I don't know where that is. Well, it's partially your responsibility to know where that equipment is stored. So speaking of tools, uh, what kind of tools should otolaryngologists have at the ready for a difficult airway? And in what circumstances would each be beneficial? So this partially depends on what you are expecting in the specific scenario you're encountering. So this will be different for every single patient and there is no blanket answer for it, but we'll go through some things. So for mask ventilation, this is an acquired skill to get good at. I always recommend to my residents to use two hands because you're not an anesthesiologist, so you don't have to look cool by getting a good seal with one hand. You have the liberty of never having to bag your own patient, so you can use two hands and get a really good seal. Um, use of an adjunct supraglottic airway can be helpful 
if you think that you won't be able to bag mass, so having something like an LMA available, if at all possible, and knowing if there's any contraindications. So is there a communication with the intracranium? Is there a full stomach? Will we not be able to do mass ventilation? Should we skip it entirely? When it comes to a beard, we already mentioned that they can be difficult for bagging. The reason being is that the hair prevents an adequate seal around the mask. To help get a much better seal, what I usually recommend, assuming that we haven't had the patient shave it beforehand, is taking a large tegaderm, putting it over their mouth and their beard, and then cutting a slit in the tegaderm where their mouth is, then putting the mask over that, and you should get a much better seal than you would have beforehand. So typically in most patients that have a beard, I won't wait to see if we get a good seal or not. I'll just start with that. When it comes to a superglottic airway, whether or not you should have an LMA, something fancier like an ED combo tube, which I personally have never used and I've only ever seen in the emergency room, is questionable. Anesthesiologists like to have that as a backup. It's less important for us because typically if we can't mask, if we can't intubate, we will be expecting anesthesia to throw in a supraglottic airway as we're preparing for a surgical airway if needed. They're also not nearly as effective and safe as an ET tube. So if possible, we avoid those, but they're great backups and it's great to wake someone up on if you can't ventilate them through bag masking them. Direct laryngoscopy. So are we using a traditional Mac or Miller blade? Are we using a laryngoscope? Video laryngoscope right now, that is probably the go-to at my institution and most institutions I have worked at. It's unfair to judge anesthesiologists for training their residents this way or CRNAs training their CRNA students this way. It's so much easier to teach someone when you're able to see what they can see. And when a learner is using a Mac or Miller blade, you really can't see what they're looking at. You can see the teeth, you can see the lips, and that's about it. If they're using a video laryngoscope, you can see exactly what they're doing. So that's the most common way people are trained right now. And they're great tools. It's because of them that flexible intubations are so much less likely to be required at this point. However, because of their excessive use right now, I've seen that the skills needed for proper Mac and Miller blade usage has gone down. And because of that, there is a lack of skill when it comes to those, which in certain circumstances, a Mac and Miller blade could work better than a video laryngoscope. If you have a somewhat obstructing lesion at the level of the glottis and you need to deliver direct pressure to your ET tube to advance it past that, it's much easier to do it with a Miller blade and having direct line of sight and a straight tube than it is with a very curved tube where the force of that pressure is going to be delivered to the bend of the tube and the tube's angled up into the anterior commissure. Next, fiber optic flexible laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy. These are fantastic for awake intubations. Whether you do it transnasally or transorally, we'll get into the details of how to do these in just a little bit. Um, they're great for cases of obstruction where you really want to keep that patient awake and you really want them to be able to protect their own airway. It's also beneficial where their airway disappears when they lay on their back, but looks much better when they're sitting up. And for me, awake fiber optic intubation is almost exclusively done with the patient in a 90 degree or near 90 degree position. Rigid bronchoscopy, another potential tool you want to have standby, especially as an ENT. So let's say you know you can get the exposure, or you think you can get the exposure with a DITA laryngoscope, but there is a severe obstruction, obstruction so bad that an ET tube with a stylet just will not get through it. So let's say we have tumor all throughout the subglottis. 
If you have a rigid bronchoscope, you can insert that through the Dito or without any laryngoscope, but easier if you have your Dito in suspension and you just use it as a boring tool and it will go through basically anything that isn't bone. Once you're past that obstruction, then you can ventilate with the bronchoscope and then decide what you want to do. If it was that difficult of an airway, I'd probably recommend getting a surgical airway while the bronchoscope is in place. And lastly, we come to our surgical airway. Lots of people will talk about doing a slash drake. Most people refer to that as a surgical cricothyrotomy, not an actual slash tracheotomy. There are certain indications for doing a tracheotomy over a cricothyrotomy, but in general, it's preferable to do an emergent crike than an emergent trach. Again, assuming that we're not able to ventilate the patient so every second counts. And then separately in the emergency room, you're more likely, although still unlikely, to run into a needle cricothyrotomy. Again, as an ENT, I cannot think of a scenario where you would use the needle cricothyrotomy. However, plenty of ED practitioners or critical care people may choose that over a surgical crike. You mentioned a little bit about operative laryngoscopes. Would you mind talking about the different ones available and, and maybe when to use each? So every practitioner will have a different approach to which laryngoscope works best for them. I'll give you my opinion and I'll tell you what some other people have shared with me as well. So for me, my workhorse for a difficult intubation because of exposure, whether that means you can't put the neck in extension or you have trismus or for whatever reason, I'm going with the Hollinger. So I want a very, very thin laryngoscope that will get me to where I want to be. The main downside of that laryngoscope is that you cannot fit any legitimate size ET tube through it. So what you have to do with that is basically in every scenario, you'll get a view. Then with that view, you take a blue airway bougie, you then insert the blue airway bougie through the laryngoscope and then into your airway. Alternatively, you could use an airway exchanger. Then you take out your laryngoscope and insert your ET tube over the airway exchanger or bougie and then take out the air exchanger or bougie and your ET tube is in place. For me, this is the most reliable. However, I have plenty of colleagues that would prefer to use a Dito to get exposure. They're able to intubate with an ET tube through that. That's a benefit of the Dito, but I've had plenty of patients where I can't get adequate exposure or at least not adequate, very quick exposure of the glottis with a Dito. So I don't want to play around with that. I want to go right to my Hollinger, get my exposure, throw in a bougie, tube over it, we're done. And you also mentioned a little bit about talking about techniques to improve uh, fiber optic intubation. Would you mind going through some of that? Absolutely. So I frequently will go through this with the anesthesiology residents that rotate on my service. The way that they're frequently taught is taught from the viewpoint of an anesthesiologist who is most comfortable back behind the patient where their machine is and is comfortable coming from a view that's over the top of the head. They need to stop thinking about it like an anesthesiologist and start thinking about it like an ENT doctor. We do similar procedures all day, every day in clinic, and ergonomically, that's what works best for a patient. You want them to be as close to 90 degrees as possible. Again, your airway will get more collapsed when you lay on your back. You have more difficulty breathing, so you want them sitting at 90 degrees. You want them awake. It's typically easier to go through the nose. However, if you need to go through the mouth, some sedation is oftentimes required to blunt the majority of that gag reflex. But assuming that we're going through the nose, you first want to topicalize the nose. Again, we're assuming that we have some amount of time. This is not a quote-unquote emergency where we only have a minute to get it. That's not the scenario for an awake fiber optic intubation, typically. So we've 
sprayed our neosinephrine or other dilator of the nose. We have applied our lidocaine to the nose. Next, we're going to start dilating the nose physically. So we'll take a nasal trumpet, we'll cover it in lidocaine lubrication, stick it into the nostril that appears to be more open, leave it there for a few seconds, next size bigger, put it in, next size bigger, put it in. Once you're starting to get some legitimate resistance, then leave that guy in for a minute, two minutes. If you want to, you can also have them inhale nebulized lidocaine while you're waiting for this. Afterwards, you're going to take out your nasal trumpet. You have your flexible bronchoscope. You have all your equipment set up. You have your ET tube taped to your flexible bronchoscope. The size, the smaller, the better. A coude tip is also more comfortable for the patient, but a regular tip if you don't have one. Typically, I'll choose a size 6.0 or a size 6.5, whatever will fit over your flexible bronchoscope depending on the size of that scope. Then you're going to take your scope and you're going to go to the back of the nostril that you chose, the back of the nasal cavity. At this point, I will typically advance the ET tube. I do not want to advance the ET tube through the nose when I'm already down into the airway because I'm already irritating them by being in their airway. Now I'm doubly irritating them by inserting the ET tube through their nose. Getting the ET tube to the back of the nasal cavity is typically the most uncomfortable part about the whole procedure. So this is when I'll typically do it. Insert that. Then I'll go down to the airway and I will start topicalizing the glottis with my 4% lidocaine. So through the flexible bronchoscope with the suction off, so you don't suction right back up, you're going to want to slowly spray that as they're giving a nice long E. Have them try and hold the E as long as possible. If they cough, if they swallow, stop. Have them do it again. Do it a bunch of times until they're able to sound like a motorboat under the water and give a nice long E with lidocaine bouncing off their vocal cords. This will also anesthetize the supraglottis. Some people will describe doing a superior laryngeal nerve block on both sides. I find this less reliable than just doing a laryngeal gargle. After your laryngeal gargle, if you haven't already inserted the ET tube to the back of the nasal cavity, now you will want to do it. So with the ET tube in the back of the nasal cavity, then you take your flexible scope. And again, I have not mentioned this, but because they're at 90 degrees, you're facing them. So the scope is just doing a C curve instead of an S curve if you were standing behind them. So you're inserting it past their glottis down into their airway. If you numb them appropriately, they won't even notice that you're down there. Then well beyond the cords, because typically when you're advancing the ET tube, they'll start to cough. So with your scope well beyond the cords, you then very quickly insert your ET tube, tell anesthesia to give the propofol taped in place, confirm that you're in appropriate position. So with your scope, you see carina, you back up, you see tube, you don't see cords, then you come out. In most scenarios, it should be a very smooth event where the patient really doesn't feel much discomfort. I've seen it done the right way. I've seen it done the wrong way. Done the right way, it's not that bad experience for the patient. And then lastly, could you quickly overview kind of the steps of a surgical cricothyrotomy? Absolutely. So when it comes to a surgical crike, or what people typically say is a slash trach, what you want to do is have these steps memorized. This is going to be one of the highest stress periods of your surgical career, and it's not a time to think about what you want. Instruments are what you need. 15 blade or 10 blade, your finger on your left hand, and a breathing tube. That is all you need technically. Preferably, you see this coming, and if you have tons of time, you can inject lidocaine, you can mark, you can get everything set up, you can get a shoulder roll, which is super helpful. But assuming you don't have time for that, you come to the scene, you ask someone to get a shoulder roll, you grab the larynx, 
you're on the patient's right, you're using your left hand, so that's going to be superior, it's going to be holding their thyroid cartilage, you palpate the cricothyroid membrane with your left index finger, you then use a scalpel in your right hand, I recommend doing a vertical incision personally, cutting from what you believe with palpation to be the middle aspect of the thyroid cartilage down to the inferior aspect of the cricoid cartilage. At this point, you will likely lose your visualization. There will be bleeding. You probably didn't have time to inject lidl with that beanie. Even if you did, you'll have some bleeding and you don't have time to cauterize. So now we're going mostly to palpation. So again, your left index finger feels down there, confirms again that the cricothyroid membrane is where you thought it was. You're not letting go of the larynx with your left hand. Right hand with the blade still in it makes a horizontal incision through the cricothyroid membrane. Whether you start on one side and cut towards yourself or you start in the middle, cut towards yourself and then twist it and cut the other way, whatever works for you. Then if you have it, a cricoid hook can be extremely valuable in preventing a false passage. You're using this not on the inferior aspect of the cricoid like most people are used to for a trach, but instead you're using it on the superior aspect of the cricoid cartilage, pulling up and inferior with it. This prevents you from false passaging with your whatever tube you're using into the space between the skin and the cricoid cartilage. Next, you are sticking your finger into that hole. If you have a dilator, feel free to stick that in there and really stretch out. Next, you're taking either a trach tube or preferably an ET tube, size six, and advancing that in there. If you have concern that you may not be in the airway, first, if the patient's awake, you will know if you're in the airway or not. There will be blood getting coughed on your face. That's a great sign that tells you you're in the right spot. You know where you are. If you're not completely sure, you can start by using a bougie and advancing that down. You may or may not feel clicks with your adrenaline rushing. Oftentimes, the clicks are not appreciated. However, advance your bougie, take your ET tube, slide it over, or if no bougie, just advance your ET tube. If you try to advance your ET tube or your trach tube and you're running to a lot of resistance at the level of the cricoid cartilage, that's the cricothyroid membrane. That's typically because you did not make your incision large enough. So if you have a dilator, stick it in there, spread it. If you have your scalpel, you can extend that excision or bougie because then you can really use a lot of force with your ET tube over your bougie, not worrying about posterior walling that. Um, you want to then inflate your cuff, attach a CO2 monitor or color changer to confirm that you're actually in the airway, start bagging, get some type of secure of the tube, whether that be tape or suture. And then there's no rush to go to the OR to convert this to a trach. At some point in the next couple of days, you'll likely want to. Any oozing there, you can put some gauze around. Usually it's not profuse. And if there is a lot of bleeding, it's typically just venous and can be stopped with pressure. But again, very simple steps, very quick if done correctly, but very easy to get flustered, not remember what to do, get scared, your brain shuts down. And this brings me back to a previous point that I mentioned that it's the ENT's job to almost always appear to be calm and in control. If you appear to be very nervous, if you appear to be scared, people will sense that. They'll then start to be scared and nervous, and they won't be able to do their job as well. Even if you don't know what you're doing, acting calm will calm them down, and they'll be able to help you more properly because of that. Thanks. I think that's a great overview. So do you have any additional tips for increasing the likelihood of successful intubation? Well, a lot of it has to do with patient preparation. So giving yourself as much time as possible, pre-oxygenation, whether that be bag masking for a while at 100% oxygen or putting them in a 
reverse Trendelenburg position because they're very obese, or really expecting a difficult time and wanting to extend the amount of time you can be apneic as long as possible, hooking them up to a high-flow nasal cannula and turning that on as soon as you're done with your bag masking. Also having them in the right position, sniffing position, neck extension, you can use ramping for the right obese patient, and the midline not rotated. Everyone has their little quirks, but having the patient in the right position and properly pre-oxygenated is key. Next, your first try is your best try. When people say this, they mean sticking the tube down into someone's throat. Every time you do that, you are causing a legitimate amount of swelling and a chance for bleeding. Just looking with a blade does not count as an attempt in my mind. You can do that as many times as you want and shouldn't run into any significant swelling. However, looking and trying to stick an ET tube down there, that counts as one try. Doing it again, that counts as two. There are several different guidelines depending on the specific organization you're looking at that will say only try twice or only try three times. It's try what's appropriate for the situation. Was it a real try where you were jamming it into the glottis a bunch of times? That's not great. If you just put a little bit of pressure, couldn't get it, and then aborted, that's not the same as if you were really jamming it down there. So use logic about have we started to really traumatize the airway or do we think the airway still has a lot of safety behind it? And there's many different strategies when it comes to the type of anesthesia and neuromuscular blockade agents that your anesthesia colleagues will be given or your critical care colleagues or your ED colleagues. What's most important is to communicate with them if you have specific preferences, also what you plan on achieving and what the strategy is. The goal of the airway and how to obtain the airway is not yours. It is not theirs. It's the two of you working together. Whether that means using a short acting, longer acting, this is a conversation to be held before or during if this is an emergency. So let's say you've got a patient who had a difficult airway. They've been successfully intubated, and now you're getting ready to decide when to extubate them. What's your approach uh, to deciding when and how to extubate a patient with a difficult airway? So the question really is, why were they difficult and what did we do to get the airway? If they were a difficult airway because they had severe trismus and we did a fiber optic intubation while they were awake, well, they shouldn't have any swelling down there. It went very smoothly. They should be extubatable without any issue. However, we have to be aware that the patient won't be easily re-intubatable if needed. So you don't want to extubate that patient very deep because you want to decrease the chance of having to re-intubate them because they were too deep under anesthesia when the tube was removed. Or are we under the scenario where we had a very traumatic intubation and we had a lot of swelling? In that scenario, it's a much more nuanced decision-making. If there was a lot of trauma, the question is, could we bag mask this patient if we extubate them and find that they're not able to breathe adequately on their own? Are we able to re-intubate them? What will be the difficulty of these? Regardless, in that scenario, you, if at all possible, want to extubate the patient with them basically wide awake, pulling the tube out themselves. That is the easiest way of fighting against the need to re-intubate the patient. So it's really a conversation between yourself and anesthesia as to what you expect the amount of swelling to be in the airway based on the prior attempts to achieve the airway, how difficult the bag mask in the patient will be, how difficult reintubation will be if needed, and trying to minimize the chance of reintubation. Typically, 
I would much rather extubate the patient in the operating room where I know I'm there. I know I have an anesthesiologist. I know I have my team. I know I have all my equipment. And if something goes south in the process, we can get their airway back. I less likely would recommend that we go to the ICU and give them steroids for 24 hours or 48 hours before we try extubation. Because in those scenarios, I won't have as much equipment. I won't have necessarily the same staff around me. And there are some scenarios where you just have so much swelling, you know it's going to be an issue and you have to do that. But if it's a close call between which way to go, personally, I'll typically usually do it in the operating room to check it for myself. So you mentioned this earlier, but what kind of documentation do you perform after encountering a difficult airway and how does that play into the patient's care in the future? So this is a very common issue that I have with other providers in my field. Anesthesia is usually pretty good about documenting difficult airways and what they did. But when it comes to an otolaryngologist and explaining, oh, I used this laryngoscope to do this and I, then I did that, they'll typically skip out the parts about all the steps before that, before they got the airway. For me, in my findings section, I'll always put in anesthesia findings and findings from my own approach. So if anesthesia had difficulty intubating and they had to switch from this method to this method, I'll put it in my findings section because I can't guarantee my residents or I will look at the anesthesia record for the next time and I don't want anyone on my side to forget that that happened. If I'm the one getting the airway and I had to use this and it worked well, I'll put that down in my findings section. If I use this and it failed and then I use that, same thing. All of these details are crucial to be in your findings section or somewhere else that's very apparent in your operative note so that anyone looking at the records can easily find this to learn for the next time. The first time you see a specific patient with a difficult airway is going to be the hardest time. The next time you see that same patient should be much easier because you've already known what's worked for you. Maybe you've known what didn't work for that patient. And because of that, it'll be much easier the second, third time, fourth time, fifth time whatever time it is for you at this point. So super, super important to provide that information in your documentation. Apart from that, I will typically very thoroughly go over this with the patient. I won't say, hey, I used a Dito and that didn't work, so then I used a Hollinger. But I'll say, hey, just so you're aware, you're not the easiest intubation. So going forward, you need to communicate that with a provider if they're outside our hospital system so that they're aware. And I'll say, your interior, in case they can remember that, or I'll say, we were required to do this or do that. But for the most part, it's important that they understand to give just a red flag to the anesthesiologist. Because if the anesthesiologist doesn't know they were a prior difficult intubation, they might miss the risk factors that specific patient has. But if the patient tells them, hey, my outside ENT told me to tell you that I'm a difficult airway, figure out what that means. Now they'll actually investigate it and see what's going on. And lots of times I'll say, you can reach out to me so that we can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation so I can explain to you exactly what happened in the past and go forward. There's other patients that I'll say, you are a nightmare airway. I don't want to ever see you at a non-academic hospital because I'd be concerned about them not being able to intubate you. So I'll say, if you don't want to see me again, that's fine. But please go to someone who's very good at getting the airway because you're not fun to do. But again, just to reiterate, good documentation and being open and upfront with the patient so that they're aware as well, so they can communicate that to people at outside institutions that may not have access to your records. 
Well, we're about ready to come to a close here. Um, this has been a great episode so far. Do you have any additional comments you'd like to make before we wrap up? Difficult airways are difficult for many reasons. One of the most difficult parts of them is the stress that's associated with it. And the main thing you can do to decrease that stress and to increase the chance of your success is mental preparation. So going through what steps you may do in what situation multiple times over and over and over so that you don't have to think about riding a bike when you get on it. You just know how to do it. You don't think about how to do this type of scenario when you run into it. You just do it. So just mental preparation is the number one thing when it comes to this type of situation. All right, Dr. Carly, it has been great to have you on today. We appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, to summarize what we've learned today, learning how to anticipate, prepare for, and then manage the difficult airway is an important skill for any otolaryngologist. It is important to have a clear plan with multiple backups in place prior to attempting to establish an airway wherever possible. While this is especially important for known or anticipated difficult airways, the majority of difficulties establishing an airway are not anticipated until the difficulty is encountered. Pre-procedural planning is crucial for successful airway management to the extent that the situation permits. Many tools exist to help with the management of the difficult airway, and ENT surgeons should be familiar with different operative laryngoscopes available and the utility of each, along with other airway tools including video laryngoscopes, uh, fiber optic or flexible endoscopes, rigid bronchoscopes, and others, with each providing utility in distinct clinical scenarios. The first attempt at establishing the airway often provides the best view, with increased swelling and trauma to the area with each additional attempt. It is recommended to move to a surgical airway after three unsuccessful attempts. Documentation of the patient's chart after encountering a difficult airway, ideally within the operative note, is an important way to communicate to future providers the risks associated with establishing a patient's airway and will help guide future providers' approach to establishing the airway in the future. Let's go and move to our questions. Uh, the first question is, true or false? Most of the time, providers are able to accurately identify which patients will have difficult airways. The answer is false. Uh, the overwhelming majority of difficult airways are not discovered until the difficulty has been encountered. Uh, it's important to consider various risk factors and physical exam findings that increase a patient's risk for having a difficult airway but no single finding provides high sensitivity or specificity for having a difficult airway. Though it is especially important to have multiple backup plans available when an airway is anticipated to be difficult, contingency planning should be part of the preparation for establishing any airway. Next question. What risk factors or exam findings indicate that you may have difficulty with bag mask ventilation or intubation? There are many different findings, but a helpful mnemonic for predicting difficult bag mask ventilation is Roman, R-O-M-A-N, R for radiation or restriction in terms of head neck radiation or restriction of neck uh, extension, O for obstruction, obesity, or obstructive sleep apnea, M for a high malampati score, male sex, or a difficult mask seal, i.e. having a beard, A for age greater than 55 years old, and N for no teeth. Lastly, what is an ideal target for end tidal O2 concentration to ensure adequate pre-oxygenation? While not always possible, end tidal O2 concentration should ideally be over 90%. Uh, this can be achieved with three minutes of tidal volume breathing or eight vital capacity breaths over 60 seconds with supplemental oxygen. 
Well, that about wraps it up for today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. Keep an eye out for our next episode and we'll catch you next time.